Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Today, let's address this subject, We Believe in the Everlasting Covenant. And I think it's important for us to go back to basics sometime. You know, a good athlete never forgets the fundamentals. A golfer has to keep his swing just right and has to remember to keep his eye on the ball, his head down, and follow through. Most people err when they forget the basics. And I think it's important for us as a church family to go back and review from time to time the core truths, the doctrinal foundation that binds us together in Christ, the things that we affirm together. And here is one of those great themes, the everlasting covenant. I invite you to open with me to Ephesians chapter 1, reading verses 3 to 6 today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. This is an inexpressibly rich and sublime passage of Scripture. As the apostle shows us the believer's position in Jesus Christ and the wonderful benefits that God has already given us in Christ from eternity past. And based on these verses, I think we can say that if God never blesses you and me again, he has already blessed us enough to deserve an eternity of praise. In fact, eternity will be too short to utter the praise that is due to his name. Notice he says he has blessed us. If I were to ask you to count your many blessings today, what would you put on the list? A lot of us would say, well, I have some money in my purse or in my wallet. I have reasonably good health. I have food to eat and a shelter over my head. God has really blessed me. And I grant you those are wonderful blessings, but they're not the best blessings. The best blessings God has given you, my friends, are not natural blessings, but they're the spiritual blessings that He has given to us in Christ before the world began. Blessed be God. I love how Paul hits the ground running in the book of Ephesians. You know, usually it takes a while to thaw me out. My heart is so cold, it takes about 30 minutes of good singing and about a half hour of preaching before I start to warm up to the themes that are being discussed. But you know, Paul starts the letter to the Ephesians on the mountaintop. The book of Ephesians has been called the Alps of the New Testament. And Paul starts at this high elevation as his soul is enraptured, his mind is enthralled 
with the great covenant of redemption, the works of God's grace that were given to us in Christ before the world began. Blessed be God. That's the language of praise, the language of worship. He is saying praise to the God of grace. And of course, he's going to discuss, as he enumerates these blessings, the doctrine of election in verse 4, according as he has chosen us, and the doctrine of predestination. Verse 5, having predestinated us under the adoption of children, and the doctrine of adoption, of course. But he discusses these theological truths not in terms of some abstract philosophical idea, but he calls them blessings. And a blessing something you and I should be thankful for, right? Election's a blessing. Have you ever thought of it like that? That God chose you? You know, I've never gotten over the fact that Sister Lori chose me. Of all the men on this earth, she chose me. And that's a blessing. And you know, I always enjoyed being chosen for the team. When the coach, after tryouts, would post the list of boys that had made the team, if I saw my name on the list, I'd been chosen. There was joy. I was thankful. And I want to tell you, dear friends, if we're thankful to be chosen for the team, we're thankful to be chosen by our life mate, how much more should we thank God and praise His name today that He has chosen us in Christ? Election is a blessing for which we should be thankful. Somebody says, oh yeah, we don't need to talk about that. You know, there are Christian people who say, let's not talk about election and predestination. Or if we do talk about it, let's save that for the experienced professionals. You've heard that, right? Let the intellectuals discuss it, but not the common people. Well, notice Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus here. A group of people just like you, and he starts the letter. He doesn't wait until the end, but he begins it by talking about what God has done for us even before time began. He chose us in Christ, and he predestinated us. It says it right there in the Bible, unto the adoption of children. I've heard Christian people say, I don't believe in predestination, and I always ask them, what are you going to do with Ephesians 1 verses 5 and 11? It's mentioned in both of those verses. In Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, it's mentioned in both of those verses. It's mentioned four times in the Bible, predestination. And somebody says, well, I don't like that doctrine. Well, Paul loved it. He said, blessed be God because of it. Praise God for it. It's reason to worship. I want to tell you, dear friends, if you properly understand these doctrines and you see yourself to be a helpless sinner, these are going to be the most glorious truths that you've ever considered that God loved you before time began, had you in his mind, and made provisions for your eternal happiness. I think we can say again this morning that if God never blesses me again in this world, he has already blessed me enough to merit an eternity of praise. And the more we grasp of what the Lord has already done for us, the greater will be our incentive to worship him. Theology is meant to lead to doxology. Doctrine is meant to lead to worship. Grace should issue in godliness and gratitude from us. So what Paul is going to do in this passage now after he says, Blessed be God for the spiritual blessings 
Not the natural blessings like money in our pocket and physical health and a roof over our head, but the spiritual blessings. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, being chosen and predestinated to be in God's family. These spiritual blessings have been given to us in Christ and the first one he lists as he enumerates them now is election. I hope it wouldn't surprise you this morning if I said that before the world began, God knew what would happen and foresaw the fall of man in sin and made provision for the remedy. Choosing a people as his own and making arrangements for their eternal salvation and final blessedness. In other words, what I'm saying today is the story of redemptive history does not begin in the Garden of Eden. You say, well, I thought history begins with the Garden of Eden. Well, this verse and others in the New Testament and in the Bible as a whole remind us that the story of redemptive history goes back beyond the Garden of Eden into the timelessness of eternity past to an intra-Trinitarian council between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit when they met in what is called the covenant of redemption, the everlasting covenant or the covenant of grace. These verses this morning in Ephesians chapter 1 have to do with the plan of salvation, a plan that was conceived in the mind and purpose of God before time ever began. What I'm saying this morning, my friends, is that God started blessing Michael Goins, not on July the 19th, 1962, but he started blessing me and you as well in eternity past. Before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God had you in his mind. He was thinking about me. Isn't that amazing? I want you to just let that thought sink down deeply into your heart this morning. Before a wave ever hit a timely shore, the Lord planned your eternal felicity and happiness. Before the morning stars sang together or all the sons of God shouted for joy, God purposed and designed a plan of salvation that is so fail-proof that it's guaranteed to be successful. These verses refer to what happened before time began. Notice the time frame. According as he has chosen us. Now, who did the choosing in this verse? God did. He has chosen us. In him, that is in Jesus Christ, and watch this, when did it all take place? Before the foundation of the world. I would encourage you to get your concordance sometime. Your Strong's concordance if you're among the strong. Young's concordance if you're among the young. Or Cruden's concordance if you're one of the crude. <laughs> get your concordance sometime and look up this expression before the foundation of the world, before the world began, or from the foundation of the world. And if you look up that expression, you're going to find multiple verses that are easy for many people to overlook as to what took place in the timelessness of eternity past. Now, I dare say that most of our Christian friends in religious circles, their theology only goes back to the Garden of Eden when Adam had a free will. You know, when God made Adam, he made him free. The first man was not a robot. He was not a machine. 
that you punched buttons and he automatically responded without any moral compunction. No, Adam had freedom. God told him that he could name all the animals and whatever he named them, that would be the name. God didn't micromanage that. He gave Adam freedom to do that. And he told Adam when he gave him a covenant in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2.16, that of all the trees of the garden thou mayest freely eat. God is so good that he gave Adam access to the whole garden, but he reserved one tree. He said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. As the devil said, what right does God have to reserve anything from us? And the right that he has, his authority is based on the fact that he's God. And that he gave Adam access to the rest of the garden. But the devil used that, you know, to convince Adam and Eve, at least convince Eve. Adam was not deceived in the transgression. But yet he convinced her that God was somehow being stingy by withholding something that would be good for you. He said, God knows that if you eat of that tree, that you will be as gods. And he's just threatened by any rivals. So he's withholding that from you. Well, that wasn't God's motive at all. God's motive in restricting that one tree, my friends, was he had made a covenant with Adam that he gave him all of these benefits and privileges, but the stipulation, the condition of the covenant was that one tree was to be protected and preserved. By the way, that tree is called the knowledge of good and evil. And I want to tell you that only God can know completely, comprehensively, through and through. Only God can know good and only God can know evil without being tainted by it. You and I, dear friends, the more we learn about evil, the more we're tainted by it. But only God can understand good and evil through and through, comprehensively, without being tainted by it. So it was really to man's benefit that God withheld this. Now, you see, Adam had the freedom. He, he could make a choice. I like what old preachers say. Adam was created able to stand, but liable to fall. Able to stand. Now, he could have obeyed God. But it was his choice. He was liable to fall if he made the wrong decision. And what happened? Adam made the wrong decision and he plunged himself and everyone he represented, his entire posterity, into a state of alienation from God. So that we come into this world under the condemnation of sin and we also come into this world. Adam multiplied. We're born sinners, right? So Adam ruined humanity by his transgression. It's called the original sin. And in theological terms, we speak of the doctrine of total depravity. That mankind in totality is fallen in sin. And there's no exception except Jesus Christ who was virgin born. And that's why the doctrine of the virgin birth is so important, by the way. Because he is not the seed of the man, he's the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus. But anyway, mankind is ruined by the fall. Well, God, in the council halls of eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit formed an agreement. In terms of the order of the decrees, God first decreed to create a universe. Now, can you see the 
Trinitarian think tank in council in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our own image. Doesn't that verse describe the Godhead as making a unilateral decision that is concurring with one another because he is in one mind who can turn him and making a compact to create. So God first determined to create a universe. And then God saw what would happen in that universe. Adam was made free. But God saw that Adam would violate, he would make the wrong choice and plunge himself and his entire family into a state of corruption. So in the covenant of redemption, before Adam sinned, foreseeing that this would happen, God made provisions in advance to rescue a large portion of Adam's family from their fallen condition, and to fashion them into vessels of mercy that they would live with him forever and praise his name in eternity to come. That, my friends, is the covenant of redemption. God's plan to rescue fallen sinners, a large portion. In fact, I believe it's a multitude. Romans chapter 9 talks about the fallen lump of humanity and how God saw the fallen lump of humanity, and he took a portion of it and fashioned it as vessels of mercy before (laughs) unto glory. That is, beforehand, God fashioned them in his mind and purpose unto glory. And all of this happened before the world began. So your theology needs to go back beyond Adam's free will. And did Adam have free will? Is man given freedom? You say, I don't believe that man has free will. Well, can you choose whether you want to go to Burger King or McDonald's? Can you make that choice? You have freedom. There's nobody forcing you or compelling you to make that choice. Can you choose whether you want to buy a Ford or a Chevrolet? You can make that choice, can't you? You have freedom. You have freedom to choose within the limits of your nature. Now, you can't choose to fly like a bird because that's beyond the limits of your nature. If you wanted to fly, you're going to have to duplicate the environment. I am not aerodynamic. I could turn sideways and show you that I'm not aerodynamic. If I wanted to fly, I'd have to get into an airplane. I cannot live like a fish in the ocean. I can't hold my breath that long. Unless I duplicate my environment by putting on an air tank, an oxygen tank, a breathing apparatus, and maybe a wetsuit, and perhaps some flippers, because it's not in the limits of my nature. But I can choose within my nature. Here's the point. Adam was born free. He could choose God or choose to do what he wanted to do. But my friends, when he sinned, his will, that capacity to choose, that decision-making ability that people have, fell in sin just like his affections and just like his mind. Everything about him became depraved so that his will, his choices now, are now limited by his fallen nature. He can't choose beyond his nature. And is it man's fallen nature to choose God? No, he'll never choose God. The will of man in a fallen condition, my beloved, is a will not when it comes to God. John 5.40, Jesus said to some Pharisees, you will not come unto me that you might have life. Isaiah 26.10 says, Let favor be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. Let him dwell in the land of uprightness, yet he will not behold the majesty of the Lord. What that verse means is you can treat him nicely, you can give him the best seat, you can give him every privilege and benefit and amenity, yet natural man will never seek God on his own. 
And you know why he will not? Because he cannot. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard change his spots? Now you answer that question. Can a person just by deciding to do so alter their skin pigmentation? Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or can the leopard just decide one day, I'm so tired of these spots all over me, I want a smooth coat like a lioness. Can a leopard just change his spots by making the decision? No, dear friends. The verse goes on to say, Neither can you which are accustomed to doing evil turn and do good. I want to say that man would not choose God if he could, and he couldn't choose God if he would. He is so fallen in sin that unless an alien righteousness rescues him, somebody comes in from the outside and rescues him, then he's a goner. He's done for. His condition is hopeless. And all of this, I want to say, goes back beyond Adam's sin in the garden into eternity past. Now here's the point. Man's will is not free anymore. It's bound. Now there's a sense which we're still free. I'm free to live in this community or to live in that community. I'm free as long as I can get all the regulations passed and all the permits I need from the government. <laughs> you know, I wonder if any of us are truly free. But I'm, I mean, I'm free to, to do what I want for the most part. But in my fallen state and in your fallen state, we don't have any ability to choose God. We're not free anymore. And therefore, left in that condition, we would have all perished and spent an eternity in hell had God not chosen us. And when did he do that? Before the foundation of the world, right? So our theology needs to go back beyond Genesis 1-1 into the council halls of eternity past. As our text says, he has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And let me just give you real quickly a lineup of several verses that talk about something that happened before time began before the world began. Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. 2 Timothy 1-9, God who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Acts chapter 15, verse 18, known unto God, are all his works from the beginning of the world. What he's telling us in that verse is that our God is a God of purpose. He does not operate randomly or haphazardly or impulsively. He's a God of design, a God of order, and a God of decree. How did he know what he was going to do in the salvation of sinners? Because he had a master plan, and that is called the everlasting covenant or the covenant of grace. You see this thought in Isaiah 46 verse 9 where God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, watch this, declaring the end from the beginning. I love that thought. You say, Brother Mike, I sure don't know how it's all going to end up. Well, I do. Because God has declared the end from or since the beginning. You know how it's going to end up? You say, I think the devil's going to win. No, I'm glad to tell you, dear friends, God's going to win. 
He will be victorious. Jesus Christ will be enthroned forever and ever. The family of God will be with Him without the loss of one. That's what John 6.37 says. All that the Father giveth me. And by the way, that's a covenant reference. That happened before the world began. The Father gave a people to Christ. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. He says, I will lose none of them. Not one will be lost. You know how it's going to end up, my friends? The devil and his angels and the wicked are going to be cast into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, and the righteous will shine as the sun in the kingdom of God, in that city that knows no night or darkness. Indeed, God says, I've declared the end from the beginning. Now, how could he say that unless he was in ultimate control? I know how it's going to end up, and the reason it's going to end up is because nothing can change God's plan for redemptive history. What I'm preaching right now is predestination. Somebody says everything that happens, God makes it happen. No, we don't believe, or I don't believe, I hope you don't either, that predestination applies to the events of time. Now, God is a God of providence. We know that. He's involved in his world, and he can overrule. But I don't believe that if I broke out into a long string of curse words right now, just off the cuff, and started saying something or started misbehaving, and say, well, the Lord made me do it. God made me do it. I don't believe that. Flip Wilson, I'm closer to his theology. The devil made me do it than I am God made me do it, you know. But I would have to take personal responsibility, and you would too, that it's my old fallen nature. I'm responsible for that sin. Do you think every tragic thing that happens, God made it happen? Do you think that every rape and murder is predestinated by God? Absolutely not, my friends. May we never be guilty of charging God with sin. He's a righteous God, and He can do no wrong. But I do believe predestination applies to people. Not events. Notice Romans 8, 29. For whom he did foreknow them, he also did predestinate. Notice he doesn't say for what God foreknew, that he predestined. It says for whom. Predestination applies to whom's, not what's. To people, not events and circumstances. God determined to save a people. And he determined to house them safely in glory without the loss of one, and had God not made that determination, had God not determined in advance, pre, our destiny, and instead of getting upset at that, you do the same thing when you're going to go on a vacation or a trip. Don't you predetermine where you're going? You say, I won't be here for such and such an event because uh, I've planned a trip. I'm going to Colorado. And I'm leaving on this date, and I'm going to make sure before I leave that I put fuel in my car, I've got some money in my account, I've got my bags packed, I've got my tires checked, the oil is changed, everything is ready, I've made the plans in advance, and I've gotten my route lined out, and I have an idea of which direction I'm going and how I'm going to get there. You predetermined, you predestinate in advance. Pre is beforehand, right? Destiny destination. You've just made a decision in advance where you're going to end up. Now here's what people don't like about it. Is predestination means that your salvation's in God's hands, not in yours. 
But I say, why wouldn't you like that? Because are you really capable of handling something as important as your eternal destiny? I'm not. I can't even handle life as it is for the most part, my friends. I make so many mistakes. I'd mess it up if it was in my hands. I'm so glad to believe that my eternal salvation is in the hands of a God who never makes a mistake. A sovereign God. A God who does all things well. And he planned all of this in the covenant of grace before the world began. I was in Isaiah 46 verse 9 declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Do you hear any hint of uncertainty in that language? I don't. My counsel might stand unless man doesn't cooperate. My counsel shall stand. I love the shells and the wills of the Bible. Now, by the way, the Bible teaches ifs also. But it teaches ifs not in terms of your eternal salvation, but in terms of the blessings that are available for God's people right now. But when it comes to your eternal happiness, my home in heaven and your home in heaven, God has given us shalls and wills, the certainty of it, because he's in control of it. Listen to these verses, Isaiah 1, 16. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God said that. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. That's wonderful. But look at the very next verse. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. <laughs> but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. You say, Brother Mike, how do you reconcile... Those two verses, Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17, back-to-back -back verses, how do you reconcile the shalls and the ifs? Well, by rightly dividing the word of truth and understanding there's a difference between eternal salvation and temporal salvation or deliverance that is available for us right now in this world. Your eternal home and happiness, the forgiveness of your sins, depends on God's covenant decrees. You shall be white as snow. But my friends, blessings available in this world, we are responsible for living in such a way that God will bless us in obedience. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. That is, you are accountable, I'm accountable for behaving ourselves. God has promised blessings to his children in the path of obedience. And we could continue to look at other verses about what happened before the world began. John 17, 5, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus prays, And now, O Father, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Like I said, that expression, before the foundation of the world, before the world began, before the world was, verse 24 of this 17th chapter, he says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me. Notice again, he refers to a people given to him. That's the doctrine of election. I will that they whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. I dare say a lot of our Christian friends don't even know this kind of language is in the Bible. And they ought to read their Bibles more, and they'd have to deal with it. I mean, it's there. Titus 1-2, 2 Timothy 1-9, Ephesians 1-4, John 17-5, John 17-24, Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. How about 1 Corinthians 2-7? 1 
Paul says, we speak, here's what I preach, Paul says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. I love the time stretch in that verse. Before the world, before the world began, God ordained something that will issue in our glory, our ultimate and final glorification. And Paul says, we're preaching about that message. That's the covenant. It's a mystery. Psalm 25, 14, the secret. It's a mystery. The secret. It's hidden wisdom. Look at the similarity in the language. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. That's Psalm 25, 14. How about uh, 1 Peter 1:20? After he talks about we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That is, Christ was set apart in the covenant to be the Redeemer, but was manifest in these last times for you. And then you can look at Revelation 13, 8, Revelation 17, 8, that speaks of those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. That means when the world started, names are already there. Now, I've heard folks say another name was added to the Lamb's book of life today. Well, you're at least 6,000 years too late. If the earth that's around 6,000, 6 to 10,000 years old, some evolutionists say it's millions of years old, but if you look at biblical chronology, it's probably six to 10,000 years old. But be that as it may, however old it is, I want to tell you that names were already there from the foundation of the world. God wrote those names there, and he wrote them in indelible ink. Old preachers used to say there wasn't an eraser on the other end of that pencil, and I'm so glad that's true because God would have had ample opportunity many times over to have turned the pencil over and blotted my name out because of how I've lived. But he inscribed them into the palms of his hands, and that is a cause for joy. Didn't Jesus say to those disciples who returned from a successful preaching trip in Luke 10, 20, Rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Paul says in Philippians 4, Salute those women that labored with me in the gospel whose names are in the book of life. Hebrews chapter 12 says that the heavenly Jerusalem, that church of the firstborn, the entire redeemed family of God, is comprised of people whose names are written or enrolled in heaven. Those names were written there in the covenant of grace. A name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life when you make a decision, when you're baptized, when you sign a pledge card. Those names were written in the covenant of grace. By God the Father, He chose a people and He chose them individually. You know, election's personal. God did not elect people like a farmer scoops grain out of a grain bin. Say, well, let's see, here's humanity. I just think I'll take this shovel and I'll take this portion. These are mine. I want to tell you, He handpicked every one of them. Election's personal. He wrote your names. He didn't write your social demographic, your ethnicity, your economic status, everybody in this income range is going to be mine. God chose individuals. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, He loved me and gave Himself for me. And you know, we sing about this everlasting covenant, don't we? About God's electing grace, about His predestinating grace. We sing about it in that wonderful hymn, Grace, tis a charming sound, harmonious to the ear. Listen to this verse. 
Grace first contrived the way to save a rebellious man. It wasn't something random or after the fact. It's grace, God's initiative and grace. Although we didn't deserve it, that's what grace is. It's God's blessing and favor to the unworthy, to the undeserving, and in fact to the hell-deserving. But yet grace first contrived the way to save rebellious man. I love that. And all the steps that grace display which drew the wondrous plan. Do you hear it? Salvation's not an afterthought. God's never been surprised at the salvation of the first sinner. You show me somebody that's born again, I'll show you somebody that God planned to save before time ever began. Look at the next verse in this song. Grace first inscribed my name in God's eternal book. It was grace that gave me to the Lamb and all my sorrows took. I love that. Don't you? Another hymn that we sing sometimes is this hymn, Long Ere the Sun Began His Days. Would you listen to this beautiful poetry? Long before, long ere the sun began his days, or moon shot forth her silver rays, salvation's scheme was fixed, was done in covenant by the three in one. Boy, that's good theology, and that's good poetry. The Father spake, the Son replied, and the Spirit with them both complied. You see the Trinity there? Grace moved the cause for saving man, and wisdom drew the noble plan. The Father chose His only Son to die for sins that man had done. Emmanuel to the choice agreed, and thus secured a numerous seed. He sends His Spirit from above to call the objects of His love. All of this happens because God planned it this way. Not one shall perish or be lost. His blood has bought them, dear they cost. What high displays of sovereign grace. What love to save a ruined race. My soul adore his lovely name. Blessed be God. By whom thy free salvation came. Somebody says, I believe in free will. That's fine. I believe in free grace. I believe in free and sovereign grace. God loved the people. God planned to save them. He made all the arrangements. He implemented the plan. And it's a fail-proof plan. And he's going to win in the end because of it. That's what we believe here at Bethel Church. One more hymn says this. "'Twas with an everlasting love that God his own elect embraced. Before he made the worlds above or earth on her huge columns placed, long ere... That is, long before the sun's refulgent rays, primeval shades of darkness drove. That is, even before God created and the earth was without form and void, they on his sacred bosom laid the elect. They were in the mind and purpose of God, and he loved them with an everlasting love. Loved with an everlasting love. Then, in his love and his decrees, Christ and his bride appeared as one. That is, Jesus stood as the representative. He said, Here am I, send me. I'll go for them. He volunteered. Her sin by imputation his, while she in spotless splendor shone. Listen to this. O love, how high thy glory swell. How great, immutable, and free. Ten thousand sins as black as hell are swallowed up, O love, by thee. O the love of God. What a sublime and sweet theme. And here's the punchline of it all. Believer, now that's you and me. Here thy comfort stands. From first to last, salvation's free, and everlasting love demands an everlasting song. 
from thee. My beloved, the message of the covenant of grace, God's eternal purpose, his plan of salvation, his decrees to choose a people and predetermine their destiny to be like the Lord Jesus Christ in glory so that none of them will be lost and to send his son to assume the obligations of fulfilling the covenant, satisfying the law and assuaging divine wrath and then to send his spirit to quicken them so that they're born again. All of that, my friends, is due to God's covenant of redemption. Brother Marshall gave me this poem last week. I'll read just a little bit of it. Now, the man who wrote this is the same guy that wrote that hymn, Come Unto Me, Charles Jones. It was not I that chose the Lord. Sounds like he would have made a good old Baptist, doesn't it? <laughs> For sin I love too dear. I was so blind I saw him not, nor knew that he was near. Full many a year, I sin pursued, deserving but to die. But now I live the life of love, for Christ has chosen me. Tis Christ has chosen me, tis Christ has chosen me. I was so vile, I loved him not, but he has chosen me. Boy, that's good. And hast thou chosen me, O Lord? What can my heart repay for such a love? I nothing have. I give myself away. Yes, me, poor sinful me, the Lord has chosen me that I should go and bring forth fruit for all eternity. Tis Christ has chosen me. Tis Christ has chosen me. I was so vile, I loved him not, but he has chosen me. That's my hope, dear friends. That's the hope I think of every sensible sinner. It rests on the grace of God, not on our works or our merit or our pedigree, but on what he has done for us. What do we believe? The things most surely believed among us. We believe that God chose a people and predestinated them and made all the arrangements for their eternal happiness before the world began in the covenant of redemption. And everything that happened in your redemption in time, Christ coming to the cross, the Holy Spirit coming into your heart, and final glorification, all of that depends on these plans made before time ever began.